Hello everyone, this is Nandini Ray, your host, and you are listening to the Maitri podcast between friends conversations with Maitri. My production team member Shilpa Sadev and I are very happy to have you all with us. Today we have a phenomenal woman with us as our guest, Meet Ruchira Gupta. Ruchira is the founder of the anti-sex trafficking non-profit Apneap that has helped thousands of girls exit systems of prostitution. Ruchira is a social justice activist, feminist campaigner and journalist. She is also a professor at New York University and a distinguished scholar at the UC Berkeley. For over 3 decades Ruchira has been campaigning um and working for a world where no girl is bought or sold. She has helped in shaping anti-trafficking policies and laws across the globe. Ruchira got numerous prestigious awards for her work. Her documentary The Selling of Innocence won an Emmy. Listeners, Ruchira has accomplished a lot in her life and if I want to do justice with her bio then probably I will need a full episode for that. So listeners, uh, it's better you read about Ruchira on Apneap's website that is apneap.org A P N E A A P no caps no space apneap.org Ruchira, welcome to our show. Thank you, Nandini. It's such a pleasure to be on a show hosted by you at My Three. I have been a long admirer of the work that you do. Thank you. I don't know where to start. You have done so many great things, and I think everyone should know about your, uh, you know, your work. And you began your. Uh, career as a journalist in kolkata india and this is my favorite city as i was born and raised in there so i already feel a special connection with you and i'm so proud of you uh, so i don't know where to start i want to know everything so anyways let's start with a simple question that um in your journalism career you extensively covered sex trafficking area so what made you interested in covering that area it's extremely dangerous and what is the story behind starting your apneya i used to be a journalist nundini and in fact i was work used began my career in a newspaper in calcutta called the telegraph mm-hmm. and at that time i was walking through the hills of nepal to cover an assignment when i came across a rows of villages which didn't have any girls or women and i was a bit surprised so i asked the men who were sitting there drinking tea you know playing cards where the girls were and uh, to my horror they said that don't you know they are in bombay and that was really uh, puzzling to me because i couldn't understand why how so many girls could be in bombay which was 1400 kilometers away and mm. these villages were even 2 hours away from the highway they were so remote so as a good journalist i of course followed my nose and i found to as i said to my horror that a smooth supply chain existed 
from these remote villages in Nepal to the brothels of Bombay. There were traffickers who could be local village procurers, who were uncles, aunts, neighbors, uh, who would go to very poor, starving farmers and offer them as little as $50, $100 for their daughters and say, we will find her a job in the big city or get her married or sometimes even say they would put her into prostitution, but say, oh, but she will get some money in exchange. You will get some money. She'll have a roof and food. And the farmers didn't know better and they would let their daughters go. And these were girls between the ages of nine and 13. And then the procurer would take the girl to the border and there the corrupt border guards would take a little bit of money. Across the border, she would be taken, locked up in these small shabby lodges uh, for a few days, beaten, starved, drugged, told that your life is over, you have no value to anyone. And then when she was completely subjugated, she would be handed over to a set of transporters who would put her on trains and buses and take her to Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi. And there they would sell her to the brothel owners and they would negotiate through a pimp. And the pimp would pay, of course, a higher price uh, for a virgin. He would ask for girls for of fairer skin, voluptuous, docile. These were the qualities that the customers wanted. Mm. And then the girls were handed over to the brothel manager who would lock them up in small rooms with iron bars in the window and sell them to man after man, sometimes even eight to 10 men a night for as little as 30 cents to be raped. Oh, and uh, behind the uh, brothel manager were the brothel owners, the landlords, the financiers, the organized criminal networks. And of course, driving the whole thing was the customers or the clients. The women in prostitution call them passengers because they just come and ride their bodies and go away. And um, they would just, uh, you know, demand that they wanted young girls, they wanted fair-skinned girls, they wanted oriental-looking girls, and the traffickers saw a profit in it, and they would unleash this entire chain of operations. So I found this, I tracked it down to Bombay, and of course, as a journalist, I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to expose this to the world. So I ended up making a documentary on the subject called The Selling of Innocence, and when I was filming The Selling of Innocence, this was for uh, HBO and Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, you know, I was constantly heckled and attacked because I was, you know, exposing something which organized criminals were doing. In uh, Bombay, when I was filming inside the brothels, a man pulled out his knife at me when I was sitting on a bed interviewing a woman. And he said, I won't let you film here. And I thought, you know, this is as close to death as I'm going to get. Uh, you know, I didn't, I really didn't know what was going to happen. But suddenly I was surrounded by 22 women who told the man that if you kill her, you've got to kill us first, because we have decided to break our silence and tell our story. And the reason we are doing so is because we want a different future for our daughters. So we want the world to know what is going on. We want the world to know it's not a choice. It's an absence of choice. This is not what we want. Our daughters don't wake up one morning to say that we are going to grow up to be prostitutes. So we want the world to understand that. And if you want to kill her, you'll have to kill us first. The man slunk away thinking it would be too much trouble 
to kill 23 women. I ended up finishing the documentary and I won an Emmy for Outstanding Investigative Journalism uh, for the documentary, 1996. And... Uh, because, uh, you know, the documentary not just um, showed the horrors of prostitution inside the brothels, but it showed that prostitution was connected to human trafficking, that the process was trafficking, the outcome was prostitution. It showed the entire method of how the whole thing worked. Mm. And, and it's kudos to you. It's an extremely ris- risky subject. And, uh, and it's a courageous step to make a documentary on flesh trade. It is not easy. And uh, um, the, the, the story you are telling me that you were attacked by uh, someone and you thought it's your last day. And at the same time, you saw that so many women, they are, they are protecting you because they know that you are trying to protect them. So yes. it's a... It's a uh, it's a beautiful story, beautiful angle that women are standing up for each other. and um, Absolutely. And that's when I realized the importance of the women's circle, that you can never be powerless if you have a circle of women friends. That was something which was absolutely physically real to me in that moment. And also that I was rescued by them even before, you know, a lot of people tell, told me over the coming years that you've rescued so many women. And I, I feel like telling them I was rescued by them first. Hmm. And so anyway, I won the Emmy. And then I thought that, you know, I've got to keep my promise to the women because they had said, you've got to help us. That's why we are breaking our silence. So I went back to Bombay hmm. with my award and, uh, you know, I, um, said, here's the word, I've told the story, you know, and the world now knows about what's going on. And we've shown it at the UN and all of that. So the women said, uh, actually, uh, you know, you've got to do something more now. Hmm. I was a bit surprised. And I said, what can I do? I said, I'm a journalist, I know how to tell a story. And they said, no, we want to do more, you've got to help us change our lives. And I said, but I'm not a doctor, social worker, lawyer, nothing. They said, but you have two things, you know, English and you have access to money and power. I said, yes, I do. So they said that let's uh, use that and please help us educate our daughters. And I said, sure. So we, I rented a room in a municipal school, hired a teacher, put a straw mat on the floor, and we began to prepare the children for school of these women. Once the teacher said the children were ready for mainstream school, we decided we would try and admit them there. Then we were told the principal is objecting because these are children of what he called prostitutes. Then we decided we would form our circle again. And the women went in their first mother circle, Amma Samu, to the principal, begged, cried, pleaded, cajoled, and said, our children are children too. Mm. The principal relented. And, uh, you know, the children were admitted into school. Not only were they admitted into school, they're now coming, you know, they've come first in class, they've graduated. Some of them have even come to America, to colleges here. One is an animation artist, the another is a Domino's pizza parlor manager, a third is a teacher, a fourth is, you know, I can go on and on. Yeah, and they just need the, you know, uh, sometimes people need resources and support. Otherwise, they, I mean, nothing, we cannot do anything in our life if we are alone. 
and it you know if we are we can provide like what you are doing really kudos to you that you are providing that support to those who are so helpless and yeah so you know i i hope that all principals in in all schools they they can embrace those students and they can give hope and opportunities to those students um yeah so it's a really moving you know, story this sunday talking about principals and students and educational institutions it makes such a difference because you know now um, uh, you know what's also happened is that as soon as we did that by educating the children the women said we need more change we want changes in our lives also so then we decided to form our ngo which is called mm. apnea which means self action in hindi and mm. it's based on forming a circle just like the women form to rescue me or save me from the man with the knife or how we form the mother circle to admit the children so that mm. became our organizing method and we named it apnea because we wanted the women to understand the name of the organization we also wanted the name of the organization to mean something about who we were and what we were doing so it really was apne aap mahila mandal um, you know that was what we wanted to call it and hmm. um, we registered it and uh, you know we had to make a business plan and we didn't know how to make a business plan so i asked the women what are your dreams and they had four dreams at that time they said that the first dream was school for their children the second was just like virginia wolf they said a room of their own the third was they said a job in an office because obviously prostitution is neither sustainable or dignified you know you earn your first day the most on your first day in the job even if that and if you're kept like these little children from nepal and um, the poorer parts of india not even that and as your body gets consumed over the years you begin to earn less and less and finally you're thrown out because your commercial life or commercial values only 3 or 4 years mm. because customers want fresh meat as they say naya mal mm. and uh, then uh, you know that was the third thing a job in an office where they had like steady salaries retirement benefits treated with dignity you know all of that and no violence because uh, prostitution includes violence it's inherent to prostitution you can legislate away maybe the boxing and the beatings and the pinching and the stabbing and the murders which are common to prostitution but you cannot legislate away body invasion body penetration because that's what a customer is buying and you can imagine the physical and mental health consequences of repeated body penetration yes so you know from skin abrasions to the vagina to repeated human contact with somebody you always get low intensity fever uh, you know you always standing on the street always gives you a backache uh, you know people coming so close to you gives you all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases is umpteen number of things that happen to a woman mm. so they wanted a job in an office and the fourth thing they said was they said they wanted those who had bought them and sold them to be punished and uh, i absolutely agreed they said those who had brokered away our dreams should be punished so that became our business plan we you know as i told you we began to form these circles hire com- start community classrooms uh, educate the children and then enroll them in formal schools and, and these are so basic human rights it's not that they are asking for something uh, you know unusual extraordinary these are these are very basic human rights right 
Exactly. That's what I always tell people when I speak at the UN or in these foundations or universities. I say that basic needs are human rights. You know, there is no point, uh, you know, fighting for what theoretically we should want in ultimate freedom if we don't have the foundational freedom of food, Uh clothing, shelter and child protection, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, this is something sometimes people of privilege cannot even understand. And that's why I call the girl in prostitution the last girl. And the idea of the last to me is that she is the most vulnerable of all human beings I know, not only because she is poor, but because she's female and because she's a teenager. So these intersecting inequalities already take away many of her choices. Mm. And on top of that, uh, in India, she could be low caste. In America, she could be black or Native American. Uh, Plus, she could be a refugee, she could be a political asylum seeker, she could be a victim of foster care abuse, Uh, she could be uh, from a broken system, war area, natural disaster, all of this. So, you know, so many things intersect to take away people's choices. Hmm. And prostitution really is absence of choice. It's not a choice, you know, and people have to understand that. Yes. And if we explore the root causes of sex trafficking, it is right, like you said, intersections of so many things of gender inequality, colonialism, systemic racism, um, casteism, caste discrimination, ableism, homophobia, so many things. And I'm glad that you addressed those issues in your writings, in your documentary, um, and you try to educate public. And I think to prevent abuse and exploitation of women and girls, we need to recognize these root causes. And unless we address these issues in our daily conversations, um, nothing is going to change. And so, you know, this podcast is one of our efforts to uh, raise awareness about these issues, about the issue of gender violence, domestic violence, uh, and power imbalance faced by women um, and other genders so that we can motivate our listeners to think about these issues deeply so that we can together, we can, we can do something because no one alone can bring any change and we can end violence against women uh, if we all take part. And I have heard that like, for example, I have heard about your 1 million meals campaign and that is a campaign. Yes, you started it, but but it is successful because of so many compassionate people they helped, right? So you alone cannot, uh, uh, couldn't make it a huge success. So um, tell us about your one million uh, meals campaign. How did it start? And um, and anything, if like any of our listeners who are listening today, if they want to help in this campaign, how can they help? Anything you want to share about this uh, One Million Mills campaign? That's a unique uh, campaign. Thank you, Nondini. So, uh, you know, um, as I told you, that that became our business plan to educate children of prostituted women and make sure that we broke the cycle of intergenerational prostitution. We also decided to help the women exit systems of prostitution by accessing government food coupons, housing vouchers, and by getting the basic 
documents. They did, they were undocumented, right? So we had them get birth certificates, caste certificates, so that also, you know, to prove that they were poor, so that they could access uh, things which were meant for poor people. And uh, once that happened, you know, slowly women began to exit systems. Hmm. And we were making success and we helped more than 20,000 women and girls, um, you know, exit systems of prostitution through education, through starting small businesses, through accessing government welfare and entitlements. Um, at the same time, what we were doing was we were working to change laws and policies hmm. so that we could go after the fourth dream of the women, punish those who bought them and sold, for, sold them. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, sex trafficking is driven on one hand by the absence of choice, which is among the poorest of the poor, the last girl. And on the other hand, it is also driven by the fact that the sex buyers have choice with impunity. Today, there's the Epstein trial going on in New York. And, you know, so many of the survivors are standing outside the court, making sure that uh, one of his abettors does not get away scot-free because they're trying to cover up. Mm -hmm. And this happens again and again with all perpetrators, right? They have more power, they have more privilege, and they get away with it. So, uh, you know, we were making some dent, making some changes. I helped to change the UN protocol uh, on trafficking. I helped to get the passage of the US law on trafficking, the first law on US. I went and testified to the US Senate. I went and spoke to the UN General Assembly. I've done the same in France, South Africa, all over the world. And then I also tried to, um, uh, you know, make sure that uh, we are changing the system while helping the individual last girl. And we were making some progress when COVID hit. And mm. I was in India at that time. And some of the children we were sponsoring in boarding schools were suddenly sent back to the red light area overnight. Oh. Oh. And uh, their mothers lost all their livelihoods. They had no income. 11 people in a room with no windows. The police were particularly brutal. They would not let them step out. The parks were even locked up. There was no food and the children started WhatsApping me saying, we are starving, starving, we have nothing. And they have no Wi-Fi plans. They have no computers. They can't access online education. You know, the mothers have to take decisions like uh, recharging a phone or buying rice. Oh, So I, uh, I thought, okay, you know, here's this 14-year-old uh, girl who's WhatsApped me that she wants food. I spoke to a friend who owns a restaurant who quickly cooked up like 500 meals for me secretly in his underground kitchen. I spoke to another civil servant friend and took her car, um, which had a curfew pass, and put the food into the back of the car and drove to the red light area. When I reached there, I saw there were 2,000 people in line. Anyway, I gave what food I could. And on my way back, I began to get messages again saying that, what about tonight? What about tomorrow? What about the others in Calcutta, in Bihar, in Bombay, where we work? And so then I realized that I have to create some kind of system to keep some food supply going because women were saying they would commit suicide. They sold their last gold chain. There were traffickers approaching them to make porn videos of their children. And, uh, you know, they were really, really desperate. So then I uh, created a food drive called One Million Meals, thinking I would, for the next 100 days, provide about uh, dry ration, which is rice, dal, cooking oil, spices, vegetables, in small kits, uh, which will have enough ration for 100 meals. Um, I would keep providing this for about 10,000 women and children in the red light areas of Delhi, Calcutta, Bihar, and Bombay. 
uh, and I would do so for a hundred days, which would add up approximately to one million meals. And so I uh, spoke to students who said they would go to the red light areas to receive the food, the dry ration when it came. I spoke to our community mobilizers who live inside the community, who made a list of the people who needed the food. And then I spoke to um, factory owners, to uh, food companies. I also spoke to grocery store owners and I said, I'll give you the money, you give me the food. And this is when there's curfew in India. No cars are allowed to move. There are no trucks, no trains, no buses, nothing. I hustled and hustled with uh, different people to get permission to uh, deliver the food. There is an Indian government uh, body called the National Disaster Relief Force, which normally helps to clear the highways from accidents mm-hmm. and uh, you know the mountain roads from landslides. They have cars and they have personnel. So I said, will you help me deliver the food, store the food in your warehouses where it can then be divided into these ration kits? So I created a human chain. Mm. And it started from the factory owner and it reached the last girl inside a brothel. And I created virtual WhatsApp groups on my phone of factory owners, of red light areas, of restauranteurs, of community mobilizers, of students. And I would just monitor every single day, phone people, say that, can you give me some food? Can you give me some rice? And I would make sure the food reached. And I began to do it and slowly, slowly, as you know now, that the one million meals has had to continue because there is nothing in place uh, for women and children in the red light area, even now. And the COVID second wave hit India in an even more devastating way. And the third wave is now there in many places where I'm hearing anecdotally that people are dying now again as winter approaches. And so I have to continue the food because these women and children will starve to death if I don't continue the food. And today is Giving Tuesday. So we also have a campaign going on on our website on apneap.org, which is A-P-N-E-A-A-P.org. We also have another website called onemillionmeals.org. And the one is just the digit one and then million meals, all one word. And, you know, we're asking people to donate so we can keep the food going uh, for them. We have now managed to distribute more than about 15 million meals to more than half a million women and girls in the last 18 months. And all through, uh, exactly as you said, there are compassionate people who help me form the human chain. And this human chain helped me reach the last girl. And I did it literally because I couldn't walk around and do much. I would just do it through the phone and it's continuing. So it's really um, wonderful that I've been able to do that. And that really restores my faith in humanity because when everything else failed, I stopped looking up. I tried to talk to the government. They would say we are doing something, not end up doing something. You know, all kinds of things happened, but we were able to continue. And that has been really wonderful for us. Yeah, that is wonderful. Like, uh, like you say that, you know, so many compassionate people are helping you to, to fulfill your dream and to help so many vulnerable souls. They, 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 they need some basic thing like food and shelter. That's it. And uh, I hope people will keep, you know, donating to your um, plan, 1 million mil, and it will, you will keep helping 
many, many uh, men, women, girls, children, anyone who needs food. And, um, you know, kudos to you. And uh, I hope that uh, you can do more work to help those who really need um, your help and our listeners who are listening uh, today and they will do something uh, to help your organization and your um, your initiative. And uh, thank you so much for your activism and leadership in ending violence against women. You are an inspiration for many activists and uh, who are working uh, every day toward this goal. And, and you know what, although we are seeing a gradual improvement in women's status uh, compared to men, but it is still very unequal uh, in terms of um, authority, opportunity, as well as an independence. So all of us need to do something. All of us need to identify those inequalities and do our best to, to bring the change. So what is your thought? Can you please suggest something that what all of us can do in our daily life to bring that change, to, to prevent inequalities and to bring that change? How can we end oppressive gender norms uh, in our daily lives that fuel actually violence against women and girls? I would say that all of us can say no when somebody is abusing us as women. Because very often we are so used to saying yes, just for peace of mind or peace in the house or whatever, that we say, Acha, let me let it happen, let it go. And when we let it go, we create a culture, which then not only oppresses us, but oppresses our daughters, our sisters, our friends, our mothers. So we have to, for the sake of the larger good, we should not let things go. We should speak up when somebody is doing something which is discriminatory or abusive to women, either to us or to our friends. The second is that what we should also do is support those who are speaking up. Very often we say, oh, she's so aggressive or she is so rude or she is always a, she's fighting all the time. But we have to understand the root cause of her aggression, of her shrill voice, why she's fighting all the time and then support her so that she doesn't feel silenced. The third thing is that very often women who are facing violence and discrimination, they are told that you're not facing violence and discrimination. They're told, no, no, nothing is happening to you. You're imagining it. And so gaslighting is very common. We should not become part of the gaslighting. Uh, you know, we should acknowledge the truth of what we are seeing and, you know, remove all our own blinkers. Because if we continue to do that we are normalizing the culture which is abusing and oppressing us mm -hmm. and this is true for men too because if women get oppressed the men who are the sons of the women are also getting oppressed a boy who's watching his mother being beaten up is equally a victim mm. and uh, the same is true of a brother who's watching his sister being beaten up right and so they are also caught in the prison of the cycle of abuse and continued abuse. So we have to make sure that even the men feel powerful enough to speak up. 
and not be treated as sissies by their peer group or told this is the male culture. And you are in Silicon Valley and I know the levels of sexism are very, very high in the tech world. And uh, some women have started speaking up and we should appreciate those women because they will break and shatter this culture of silence. And this will bring about a big change. the other thing is that, of course, you know, how are we bringing up our boys and girls? You know, do they have to be gender segregated roles? Mm. We are living in a time of gender fluidity. Everybody is manifesting their different sexualities. So if people are talking about gender fluidity in terms of sexualities, then why don't we also think about gender fluidity in terms of work roles? Why is it only in sexuality issues why is it why does it have to be that one class of human beings always orders and one obeys one gets better paid for their work one may not even get paid for their work and uh, one is always seeking approval and the other is giving approval let's change that why do men have to be the breadwinners and women the caregivers why can't we turn it around Hmm. and maybe everyone will then learn the values of love and compassion yeah and and you know uh, like as you say that some some of our culture like victim blaming so whenever something is going wrong always women are blamed always uh, victims are blamed so that we need to be mindful of we need to change that culture and as you say that men they have also a big role in in bringing that change you know that's why we are here today and every day so that we can start talking about these issues and we can engage and include our entire community to think about this issue and do something and thank you so much ruchira for coming to our show and sharing your courage your optimism and knowledge with us uh, thank you Thank you for hosting me. And I'm, I'm really touched because, you know, I've always respected your organization, Maitri. So I'm very happy. Thank you. Good luck to all that you do. And it's a circle of sisterhood. So we all do it together. I'm equally inspired by you all. Yes. Um, so listeners, all of us must uh, remember that with small and big efforts together, we can prevent violence against women. Please do your part, identify misogynistic behavior around you, reflect upon your own actions and thoughts and see if they are misogynistic and then change those harmful behaviors. You can help many ways to end uh, violence against women and girls, donate to a local uh, agencies that empower women, local to Maitri, Apneap, and many organizations like these agencies, and amplify survivors' voice, support survivors, stand up against child marriages, sex trafficking, domestic violence, advocate for girls' education, and promote acceptance of all gender identities. Thank you for listening to the Maitri podcast between friends, conversations with Maitri. Hope you are liking and sharing our podcast. Uh, If you are a new listener, then please find all our episodes from the past seasons on SoundCloud and other podcast apps. Send us your feedback to outreach at maitri.org. I'm your host, Nandini Ray, signing off today. I will come back very soon with another discussion. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Namaste.
This project was made possible by funding provided by Santa Clara County Office of Gender-Based Violence Prevention. This show is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice. Always consult an attorney for legal advice. Views expressed by guests of the radio show are individual opinions and not endorsed by Maitri. Maitri is a free, confidential, non-profit organization based in the San Francisco Bay Area that helps families and individuals facing domestic violence. Don't suffer in silence. Call Maitri Helpline 1-888-MAITRI. M-A-I-T-R-I. Visit our website, maitri.org.